Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about medicine and agriculture with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet and critters. I was accused of being speciesist by <laughs> only talking about people in the planet. <laughs> and and so, uh, you know, creatures and microbes and anything else that wants a little love. Um, my name is Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk about really an important part of the application of technology. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about genetics or chemistry, but I really wanted to talk about the role of the extension professionals. And we happen to have with us today, Dr. Chad Lee, who is an extension professor in grain crops at the University of Kentucky in the Department of Plant and Soil Sciences. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Thank you very much, Kevin. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on here. We've been trying to do this for a while. And uh, could you talk to us a little bit about, um, first of all, what what is extension in the land-grant mission, and what do you do in your day-in and day-out job? Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. The short answer for extension is when it was initially established, and our role today still is the same, is that we were taking the ideas and concepts that were developed at the university through research and some from our teaching and taking it directly to the practitioner, in my case, the farmer, to help them apply that technology. In reality, it really works out. It's a, it's a two-way street, and, and that is we get a lot of really good ideas from our growers just as they ask questions about how to grow crops and do it in a better way that really give us a lot of ideas about um, addressing some of those issues and needs that we, we try to do in some of our applied research, and then we, we, we pair up with other colleagues that have more of a teaching role and more of a, more of a research role as well. Yeah, that's one of the joys of the extension system and that at least if you're doing it right, uh, someone in our department like uh, who has a research and extension appointment will do research that's relevant because they've done their extension homework. They've asked the farmers and stakeholders, what is it that you need us to do? What are the questions that are pressing for you? And then we do questions that uh, we answer research questions that are relevant to those clientele. And what's so cool about that is that we tend to ask better questions that 
ultimately are more competitive for funding and all of the other stuff. So extension is a, is, is a real two-way street, as you mentioned, and pretty exciting. And uh, so like, what are, what are some of the exact duties and roles that you have as an extension faculty? Yeah, that's a great question. So my primary role is I'm the agronomist for corn, soybeans, and small grains in Kentucky, um, basically our row crops. And uh, I work in all three of those crops. And the good news for me is a lot of our farmers grow all three of those crops. And so I'll get questions from farmers on any one of those. I do have a research appointment like you talked about. So I do a lot of applied research. Uh, I team up with other members uh, at the university level, other faculty to do some research. We work with, we have an extensive county agent system in Kentucky. We have um, 120 counties. We have 120 extension offices. Uh, with agents in every county. And um, I work with those agents quite a bit as well. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we do a lot of work with our producers. A lot of things we test uh, come about because of, of questions that we're all asking together. And I find that to be extremely enjoyable and, and frankly, a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it's fun. And it's also, it's fun because you see the rubber hit the road. And when you meet your growers and you meet the folks in the field who benefit from your expertise, it really is such a partnership. And it's made me really fall in love with the extension side of this. And I think, you know, I I don't know, I kind of wish I had more of an extension appointment to actually engage that more. Um, But, you know, in a way, the podcast does that a little bit. But let's talk more about, um, uh, really about, you know, some of your experiences. And what's really cool about this on a biotech podcast is Kentucky is a great example of a place where you have some genetically engineered soy and corn, some folks who don't. Mm -hmm. And so what is kind of the breakdown there in terms of uh, the amount of genetically engineered germplasm in your state? Yeah, that's an excellent question as well. We've got um, somewhere around uh, 85 percent or so of our corn is GMO. About 15 percent is non-GMO. That number has risen the last couple of years. And if I were to guess today, that might go a little bit higher. And our soybeans are about the same as well. We've got some farmers that have never grown a GMO soybean. Now, we've got some farmers that have grown, that are growing nothing but GMO soybean. And on the corn side, we've got some farmers that are growing non-GMO corn for specific markets. Uh, they keep those that crop isolated for those markets. We've also had a history of growing white corn in Kentucky, and so you know, you're, you're used to normal yellow corn, which is what most farmers grow for feed for cattle and, and for ethanol and things like that. But the white corn goes into things like tortilla chips and, and uh, cornbreads and things of that nature. And so we've had farmers that have had a history of isolating those fields uh, and keeping that separate for, for those markets as well. Because we're so close to the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, uh, we probably have a fair bit more export than some other states in the Midwest. Um, uh, makes it fairly easy for some of our farmers to take contracts that not only address local uses for corn, but there's some contracts that, that go directly to Asia, for example. Okay, and certainly Europe or other places that you could have a uh, non-GMO pipeline um, and maybe get a premium for those products. Is that kind of how that's working? That's exactly how that works. And in those cases, the farmers are, are intricately involved in identity preservation, making sure that what gets to their buyer is the corn that they grew on their farm. Yeah, so let's talk about a couple of those these issues. In terms of production, what do you as a, an extension professional have to advise 
the folks do that do GE corn versus non-GE corn? What are the major differences? Right. And so, well, let's talk about the couple of different uh, types of corn. If we're talking about herbicide tolerance, and that would be your Roundup Readies or your Liberty Links right now, uh, primarily, you're talking about um, differences in weed management systems that have to take place. And if you're doing it, dealing with non-GMO corn, there are a whole cadre of different um, techniques you're going to use, chemicals you're going to use to help control weeds. And there's different restrictions on labels and different things in terms of keeping tanks clean when you go from one crop to another crop. Uh, so the differences show up that way in that regard. And I'll, I'll just say real quickly, Roundup made it easy. Roundup made it extremely easy. And I don't think anybody predicted that in the process. Um, and now on the BT side, if we start talking about insect tolerance, um, the difference there is we have some growers that grow non-GMO corn. And in that case, they're scouting that corn uh, mid-season looking for some target insect species in particular. Uh, if those species are at a high enough level, then they'll spray an insecticide over the top. On the other hand, if they're growing the BT corn, they've already targeted against that insect, and so they don't need the insecticide over the top in those fields. And so there's some differences that way that we see. Um, we also, as the agronomist, um, I'm involved with hybrid trials, and so we're always looking at well, what system gives us the best yield and what system is the most profitable overall. And so I've actually walked through farmers on production budgets um, trying to decide whether to grow GMO crops or non-GMO and discuss those management factors. So you mentioned that BT corn uh, doesn't require the same sort of scouting or insecticide use, but are there cases where it does? I mean, do you find examples of resistance in Kentucky and, and do they use, uh, does it limit the number of sprays or does it eliminate the number of sprays? Oh, it, it limits the number of sprays. So far, to my knowledge, we haven't had the resistance issue show up here that, that you've seen in some other areas. And that probably has something to do with the way we rotate crops on a pretty frequent basis here. Um, but now you do have some other insects that, that may show up that aren't um, being targeted by BT. And so, you know, nobody's building fences around these fields to keep the bugs out necessarily. And so you may have a different insect altogether that shows up that you weren't planning on in which case you may still have to put a foliar uh, insecticide on. Um, but certainly when you put the BT out there, it limits it. And I think the biggest thing we realized was just how much yield we were losing before when we, when we didn't have the BT option in the fields. Yeah, I think that was, uh, I didn't want to overstate the uh, role and the effect of the BT and, and kind of give the false impression that this was a, you know, magical force field. You know, there still is that need to scout and and uh, and use other strategies. But what about Roundup Ready? You said that Roundup made it easy. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, and that was probably more evidenced initially on soybean than corn. And um, with my background, uh, I'll just I'll use myself as an example. I used to have in my head a chart of about, I don't know, maybe 15 different herbicides and probably about 20 different weed species. And I, I could tell you which herbicides controlled which of those species and which combinations you needed to have, what was the maximum height you had to have, how much injury you got on the crop if you used different mixes, what time of day you could use them. This kind of went on and on. And I think I was at Kentucky for about three or four years as the agronomist, and I caught myself saying, I'm not sure what weed that is, but I know Roundup will take it out. <laughs> and so uh, it just made, it made that process extremely easy. And 
uh, you've seen, you know, you've, we've all seen the easy button commercials. Um, you, it, you just enormously simplified the weed control process for farmers. And I don't think anybody thought that Roundup Ready would be nearly as successful as it's been. Uh, except maybe my boss as an intern. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, right, but here's the problem. Uh, you lean on that easy button too many times. And you push it and you push it and push it. Every time you have a problem, you push the easy button. And eventually it doesn't work so hot. And I yes. think that's been evidenced around the country in different ways with Roundup Ready resistance. Resistance to Roundup or glyphosate. So how bad is the uh, resistance from specific weeds in Kentucky? Well, we were one of the first states to have resistance. In fact, it was a, a species called mare's tail. Some, some areas call it horseweed. Uh, it's a winter annual that grows, and it was prevalent in our no-till systems. And so we pretty much assume now that if we've got mare's tail in a field, that it is resistant to glyphosate. And then we've also got some of the, uh, the pigweed species, the water hemp and the palmer amaranth as well, that's made it into Kentucky and uh, is a major problem, particularly uh, along the lower bottoms and the Mississippi River area. Um, and so you're absolutely right that it was so, so easy that farmers ignored us when we, when we pleaded with them, please put other things in the system. Please <laughs> use other methods to help control your weeds. And they just looked at us like we were talking a foreign language because they said, this is so easy. Why am I going to, why am I going to do anything else? So. Well, 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 you know, yeah. When you have the easy button, why would you push push the less difficult button? Exactly. You know? <laughs> and and we heard this argument over and over. A farmer says, "So you're telling me that if I use the same product over and over, I could get resistance, but you can't guarantee that I'll get it. This is cheaper. It's easier for me to do. It's less time. It's less labor. On and on and on. I don't think I'm going to use something else. <laughs> so." Yeah, this is the same farmer who has uh, who lost a finger to a staff infection because yeah, he that could be too. <laughs> too many antibiotics. That could be, yeah, but that I, could be too. So I, I guess my part with that is I do have a little bit of sympathy for the growers in this that that um, yeah they got a lot of things they're trying to do and, and I'm probably amazed every time I go on a farm and I see how they get their logistics in process and how they get through things. Um, and so I don't blame them when they look at something and say, well, that's super easy. That's what I'm going to do. Um, I do think a lot of our growers are now extremely aware of what happens. Even let's back up. We were told at the very beginning um, that you wouldn't get resistance to glyphosate because it was such a different herbicide. And I remember as a grad student being in a room where there was a pretty fierce argument between a, a certain company and several university professors over this issue. And the university folks were adamant that, yes, we're going to get resistance if we'd use nothing but this. And the company folks were like, no, it won't happen with this one. This one's different. Yeah, I guess that's, and I, I guess I was one of those university folks back then. Um, I remember thinking about this question and thinking, how can you possibly say that you won't get resistance when you're placing a selection into the field um, that is being done over trillions of organisms uh you know the the midwest is just a gigantic petri dish in a way and that if you're looking for the exception to the rule the one out of a trillion that'll escape the chemistry that's where it's going to happen and and this is what happened it and you're exactly right whereas the companies were digging in and actually have stated in written documents that there will not be glyphosate resistance um it happened 
and it's coming back to bite people in a big way. I guess the big question that I think about in Kentucky is how many farmers are affected so much by weed resistance that they've just abandoned the extra cost of genetically engineered seeds and gone back to non-GM seeds and the potential profits of those markets. Yeah, actually, most folks haven't done that. What they've done is they've switched over to another another one called Liberty Link, or they've switched to the new one called Dicamba, which has its own challenges as well. Um, the growers that have chosen to go the non-GMO route have done it not because of a weed control issue. They've done it because they already had their weed control in place to begin with, um, if that makes sense. Uh, in other words, if you've got the palmers and the pigweeds coming in, you probably don't want to use those fields uh, in a non-GMO uh, field because your non-GMOs typically are contracted out. And you've got to basically guarantee that you're going to deliver on that contract, and you wouldn't want to do that in fields that are heavily infested with the with the palmers and pigweeds. Yeah, I see. And, and, and you had mentioned once before to me that Kentucky is a no-till state. So is that um, also eliminate that? Is that an official Kentucky rule or is that just the way things went because you had other strategies to manage weeds? Oh, that's a great question there. And uh, it's, it's not a rule. It's just in the 60s, again, a farmer in the 60s, a farmer in West Kentucky started doing no-tillage. And it would have been my predecessor's predecessor, if I've got the order right, Went from the campus all the way down to West Kentucky. At that time, would have been about a six-hour drive. Today, it's about three and a half on the interstate. I went down to convince the farmer that he was wrong and instead spent the rest of his career figuring out how to make no-till work. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we've been doing no-till ever since. Uh, it started out as a soil conservation issue for our growers. We've got rolling uh, topography. We, our, our soils are forest-based, which means they're shallower than the soils up in like um, – the grass-based areas of, of Iowa and Minnesota. And so it was just a natural system for our farmers to work with. The university came in, like I said, and, and it's really we've really developed no-till, and uh, it's pretty widespread. So you're right. We do have some farmers that have gone back to tillage in some of these fields that are heavily infested. And has that actually been uh, enhanced because of the uh, GE technologies, like the ability to use glyphosate? When we went to, yes, when glyphosate came in, so when glyphosate came in, it made the ability to do no-till much easier as well. I'll go back to that easy button. Um, and we saw uh, much wider adoption of no-tillage once the glyphosate came in and, and allowed farmers to really move in that direction much, much easier than what we did with some of the other chemicals before. And I guess my other big question before the break is, is you mentioned the idea of people growing a non-GM crop with a, an identity preservation, that uh, there would be an issue of cross-fertilization actually showing up in the crop uh, that would potentially flag it as a GE um, uh admixture or some sort of mixture. Um, how do farmers there control the pollen mixture and drift with the neighbors how do they uh, are there buffer zones or timing of planting or what happens yes there's a, a little bit of both and and again we had the white corn history to work with so white corn is recessive to the yellow that we see with the yellow corn and so if you have yellow corn pollen that drifts into a white corn field the kernels on that ear will end up being yellow and so our farmers grow buffers around their field edges. And the buffer is just 12 to 24 rows of white corn 
that they'll harvest separately and um, uh, keep that away from the rest of the field so that what's in the middle of the field gets sold as white corn. And when it comes to doing non-GMO corn, they're doing a similar strategy for that. Soybeans are easier because soybeans are like 99.9% self-pollinated. And so you're not worried about the, the pollen drift on soybean like you are on corn. Yeah, that's that's. I just always am curious about that because the question comes up all the time about how do you have two systems that coexist? And it really comes down to that same old idea of uh, good agronomy, but also maybe some timing and communication. How you know, and, and the idea of being able to uh, understand what your neighbor's planting and when they're planting it. And so I'm always interested in those discussions. Um, are there any other strategies that folks use? Those are the primary ones, and I want to I want to emphasize here that we've got farmers that are doing both GMO and non-GMO, and so they're isolating in their own operations uh, and doing it successfully uh, quite well. And I think if there's anything else I would I would mention, I'm going to sort of pivot just a second and say that our farmers choose to grow the GMO crops. They they choose to purchase those. They have determined that the extra cost is worth it to their production systems because of that easiness I mentioned before. Um, and so they're making that choice. They're also choosing to grow the non-GMO. Uh, there, there is not a company, there is not a, uh, a boogeyman somewhere that is forcing them to grow one crop or the other. Okay, and that's an excellent point because I think this is what's so nice about having you on is we've already put the bed like 30 different common <laughs> uh, misconceptions. So that's really helpful. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Chad Lee, who's an extension professor in grain crops at University of Kentucky. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today, talking with Dr. Chad Lee, who's an extension professor of grain crops at the University of Kentucky. And in the second part of the podcast, I have a couple more things I'd really like to talk about, mostly because here's a chance to talk to the boots on the ground, extension agronomists, people who um, really don't have, um, I always hate this term, but don't have a dog in the fight. Um, they're objective uh university, you know, state employees or federal employees, I wanted to turn to the idea that the CAMBA 
damage, the off-target uh, damage from volatilization and, and movement off-target, which has been a, a huge issue in other areas, like in uh, mostly in Missouri and Arkansas. And what's happening in Kentucky with respect to dicamba and off-target effects? Well, we don't have near the number of acreage issues that you hear from uh, Missouri and Arkansas, although in the far western part of Kentucky, along the Mississippi River, we've had uh, one of the counties out there where the, the comment was made that you could quickly identify which fields were not dicamba soybeans based on the injury you saw in the fields. And so we do have some pockets, particularly along our rivers, where we've, we've seen some pretty extensive damage. Hmm. And and when you look at what's happening in Arkansas and in Missouri, and let's say especially with regard to the extension professionals in those areas, Illinois, um, what has been your take as somebody who's watched this from the outside? Well, my first take, if I'm really <laughs> honest, is I'm glad I don't work in Missouri and Arkansas <laughs> right now. Um, the uh, you know the. the and I'm going to say it this way. I do think, and somebody will clip this and make it, make it a short statement. I do think we're all biased. And I think in our case, we're biased toward the growers. And we're biased toward providing the best information possible. Um, the, the best, regardless of which company, regardless of, of which source, we're, we're really biased toward trying to provide the best tools and options that are available. And I look at my colleagues in those states, and they're really caught in the middle between them. Um, between companies and between farmers. We've got farmers that are adamantly in favor of using dicamba, and, and uh, we've got some farmers that adamantly do not want it around. And uh, I, I feel like my colleagues are getting it from all sides. I think that really sums it up well. Um, I've you know I've seen these guys on several occasions. I say guys because it is mostly males. But um, certainly um, they're worn down from this, and especially the folks who've actually incurred threats and lawsuits from companies and you know and and Mm -hmm. having a company call your university and say we need to talk to the dean you need to you know settle your person down out there i mean i'm under the impression that kind of thing is actually happening is is that your impression as well Uh, we've heard some of that too and that's that's actually quite shocking because i will say that most of the researchers i know in those companies are are actually good people too and i i get the sense from some of the field research people that they're cringing at that as well. So I think it puts them in an odd spot. But yeah, it's an odd, odd thing. But you know, I've got a colleague that that's being sued by a fertilizer company because his results didn't show that their fertilizer improved yields. You know, and so I think that's um I I don't I don't I don't know the reason why, but that it that does happen and it's that's extremely unfortunate and it breaks down uh, system, you know, we we talk a lot that the system here requires our farmers to be involved. It requires our industry to be involved. It requires our private crop consultants to be involved, and it requires us to be listening and be involved as well. And if we're all working together um, to improve agriculture, then th- good things are happening. But with, when you see the those type of lawsuits coming in on folks that have pretty good data behind them. Yeah. That I find that to be extreme. I don't. I don't know. Is that an attorney trying to protect their investment? That it must be. Um, and now I'm probably in dangerous waters because. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, the the FOIA request will be there tomorrow. No, it's a. It really mm-hmm. is a. Uh, um, it, the thing that that really bothers me about it is because, uh, first of all, the allegation in the popular media, especially the anti-ag folks, say the universities just do whatever the industry tells them to do and get the results that the industry wants, and that's you know, and nothing further from the truth. The results are what the results are, and oh, the problem is. But then, then, you, then you publish those results, and then someone else gets mad because you gave the results. And we've had it, you know, here at my university in a number of different ways. I mean, even when uh, your friends, places like Sierra Club or, or you know, the folks that you would think would be on the side of universities, go after universities because you publish data that they don't find attractive, <laughs> or, yeah. or you know, they, you publish a reality that they can't mesh their gears with and uh that's it's really unfortunate because it could the the data that come out of these studies whether they're funded by industry or funded by the government they are what they are and uh, the fertilizer may have worked just perfectly on some other soil type or some other crop but didn't work in this case and that's good for them to know too that's a great answer that's that's correct and you know i've experienced that personally because i work with a lot of the companies it's my job to work with a lot of the companies and and work on uh, near end use products and such, and I've had some companies where I've had some folks where I, I've done research for them and the answers that came back were what they were and they weren't happy with it and I've never heard from them again. I've had some other companies where I've had data that that has been that way and they're back next year and I've had folks tell me, well, at least we know you're giving us good data that we can right. go by and so so you've you've got. You got that mix everywhere, right? Um, and yeah, I mentioned my, my internship. One of my bosses at my, my first intern, she worked for a company. I, I worked for her. And I remember she was giving a recommendation to a farmer on something that wasn't their company's product to use. I said, well, why'd you do that? She said, well, I'm a scientist. The only thing I've got is my integrity. She said, I don't know who I'm going to be working for five years from now. You, you know, somebody could buy somebody. But I need to maintain my integrity as I go, and that that has really resonated with me throughout. And I think I think most people um, that that I work with fall into that category. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the folks who are you know in extension agronomy or extension capacities, they're they're they could be making a much higher salary working for a company. They work for who they work for because there's an obligation and really a, a, a almost a service feeling to what we do in those capacities. And I think that it really does shortchange everybody when we talk about uh, when those allegations are made, when they say, well, they're just pawns of companies that are doing their bidding. I mean, frankly, I love when companies fund research. I've never been a big beneficiary of that myself. Like we have had some small support Mm -hmm. from companies. We've had good support from the Florida strawberry industry because that's who benefits most from our research. Mm -hmm. But, you know, nobody's walking around saying that, you know, the enzyme we discovered is that catalyzes the last committed step in the production of methylenthranilate, which makes the grape notes in strawberry. You know, no one's (laughs) making allegations that that's somehow fake data. Right. Um, Right. You know, uh, you know, so it's, it all depends on who you're playing for and when you're in a position where your interactions are with the you know monsanto dalbay or syngenta that's where people get a little bit weird but why is it that way why are people so concerned about the companies having some sort of influence on your results i 
my my only thought is, is it just fits a narrative that they want to tell. Um, and it's, it's much easier to, to create a, um, uh, a narrative that everybody's out to get you, that there's a, con- I think we, I think as Americans, we all love conspiracy theories. Uh, and, um, I think those are, that's juicier. You know, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. I got an, I got a call from NPR one time to be on an hour long radio show. And it was in 2012 during the worst drought we'd had in 20 years. We've had excellent weather since I've yet to get another phone call back. So yeah. I, mean, I think it's, you know, they like those stories that are, that show conflict, that show there's something underneath the, the rug, something being hidden in the closet. And I think that's, that's part of it. And I'm just as guilty too. I mean, I'm, I'm highly skeptical of any research that says bacon's not healthy. So (laughs) (laughs) now we've all, you know, we all have the hill we want to die on, right? We just want to wait until we have cardiac disease. Yeah, I guess might be, might be. I mean, that, you know, that, that's one that's, uh, yeah, that I, I probably uh, put my own blinders on, on that one. And, um, yeah. Well, sure, but well, look at salad, it's healthy, right? So, <laughs> well, well, it, well, it's that. But think about the idea of you know the the biggest risks that we take are probably driving, and then the other big risk we take is alcohol. When you look at the number of deaths per year and the amount of use and all that yeah. stuff, um, you look at the 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 tie to chronic disease and. Yet it's, you know, we modulate those risks and we justify them and it's no big deal. I, I guess I'm a little bit off track, but I, I wanted to get back to that idea about NPR because I had, uh, I was on Tom Clark's show once and uh, the first question to me was, how much money does Monsanto pay you? And Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was on with the governor from Vermont who was a uh, organic farmer mm-hmm. and he didn't say... I mean, here the guy is is a government official who has a farm that would benefit from the, the labeling legislation that he's pushing to pass. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here's a guy who's like steeped in conflict of interest, yet Tom Clark had to disqualify me, not not by saying you have this funding for your research, but just by putting that boogeyman out there. And even though I've never had a single research dollar from Monsanto, they funded this tiny communications program at my university that we had to uh, abandon their funding because of, you know, that old story. But it, it just is a very strange thing that to negate somebody, uh, to kind of negate somebody's credibility because of their associations with companies. I mean, does how much research do companies actually fund in your world? Oh, in our world, uh, the, the company funding is integral to what we do in our applied research. Um, and, you know, for, for me, I've got to work with the latest technologies that are out there in terms of genetics um, and, and things like that. And so I'm, I'm constantly working with the companies to try out new hybrids, new varieties. Um, we're doing some really cool things on irrigation and, and some hybrids that may show uh, the ability to get, get by with a little bit less water. I mean, I think that's a lot of fun. Um, and, and so for us, it's, it's, it's critical to what we do, but equally critical for us are our farmer groups. So we've got several farmer groups in the state that really heavily fund, uh, applied research. And they're, they're absolutely vital to what we do. Our corn growers just bought 300 acres of land for us to expand research onto. Um, they're helping us, uh, our commodity boards in general are helping us, uh, uh, put in a, a major expansion at one of our research farms, uh, a 15, well, $30 million project in total. Uh, they're, they're helping 
with some of that aspect as well. And so and it, it takes working with all of those folks. We've got we've got projects here locally with uh, with the local nature conservancy. A couple of our farmers have the projects. I'm involved as sort of as a as a unofficial advisor on some of the things they're implementing that way. Um, I'll get back to I'll, I'll, let me get back to the kind of tie this together for us. What really intrigues me or interests me about the GMOs for for what we do here is they did make no-till a bit easier to accomplish. And for us, no-till is absolutely critical to keep our soils in place, to give us better soil structure. We gain about an inch to inch and a half of water in a no-till system versus a regular system. And for us, that's our soils are so shallow that we're going to run short in the summer um, either way. And that extra inch is a massive buffer for us, and it results in higher yields and more efficiency, more productivity. Um, and so for us, the, the GMOs fit, they're, they, they're a part, they're another tool in the toolbox that fit the overall system to help us grow more, do it in a way that helps us keep the water clean, do it in a way that helps us benefit our soils. And that is absolutely critical. You know, we've got, we've got farmers right now that are massively experimenting with cover crops, trying to do additional things to help keep their soils in place. They're not doing it because of a government program or anything else. They are adamantly, adamantly concerned about keeping their soils in place and good soil health and good soil structure. So with that said, would you argue that the genetically engineered crops are the most uh, relevant, maybe the biggest breakthrough technology relevant to uh, farming in your state? I realize what the title of your podcast is. The answer is no. <laughs> to me, the the biggest paradigm shift that we ever experienced in grain agriculture was when we figured out how to make hybrid corn um, because it gave us the genetic yield potential increase. But also, it's the first time in history that we had a massive shift from farmers who collected their own seed, saved their own seed, would trade seed back and forth to where because hybridization is more complicated to do, now we had people that specialized in growing seed and improving genetics and were selling that seed to farmers every year. That was the biggest, most massive shift that we saw in agriculture, in my opinion. It took a lot of other technologies to make that system work. But no, that, that was the biggest change we dealt with. Yeah, it's, a, it's pretty amazing when you look at those charts and you look at, say, per acre yield um, with corn, and it kind of bounces around, you know, 15, 20 bushels per acre for years, 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 century after century. And then all of a sudden, this sudden spike where it starts this upward trajectory right at the advent of hybrid corn production. And yes. uh, really, and, and that's one point that I always love to make is that, you know, these GE traits are a cherry on the Sunday. And I think for the purposes of a communication strategy for farmers or for scientists, you know, don't overemphasize the value of a GM trait. It gives you that one extra little bump that the real might of the companies and the might of the, of the genetics comes almost, almost, I would say, 100% from the uh, hybrids themselves they have these remarkable combinations that give you outstanding yields and good potential and these uh other traits are just other ways to kind of ensure that you reach that potential that it really comes from the the mix of genes i, I think you're i think you're spot on with that now i'm going to put this in a little bit different way than what you said in 1930 
on average, our farmers planted about 9.3 pounds of seed per acre. 9.3 pounds of seed per acre. The average yield in the U.S. at that time was 1,148 pounds, basically a little bit over 1,000 pounds per acre. If we fast forward to 2000, and my, my most recent one I've got is 2010 on here, we now plant about 17, 18 pounds of seed per acre. So we've increased our seeds, but now we're up about 8,500 pounds. So over that period of time, we went from 1,000 to 8,500 pounds as a national average. And most of our growers now on our better systems, they're upset if they're not getting 11,000 pounds of seed per acre. Think about just how efficient that is. You're planting roughly 19 pounds of seed per acre, and you're getting back a little over 11,000. I mean, that's yeah. phenomenal. It is, it is absolutely phenomenal. And that is the reason why corn spread like wildfire all around the world is because it was such an efficient method to grow starch. That's the big reason why it moved like it did. And you're right. The GMOs that we're dealing with, in my opinion, they're, they're great tools. They're extremely useful, but they're not the sole. No, you're, you're right. The background genetics are what, what's driving yield. So, Chad Lee, you know, that was today was a really cool episode because I think you let the air out of many of the common myths. You did it from the perspective of an extension agronomist, you know, boots on the ground in the state of Kentucky. And um, if people wanted to learn more about you and what you do, uh, where would they follow you on social media or find you on a website? Well, I think the people that really enjoyed this podcast could find me at Kentucky Crops. And the ones that don't could probably use your Twitter account instead. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. No, that's cool. So Kentucky Crops, it's called. Yes. Is it a KentuckyCrops.org? No, that's, that's or what's the Twitter the handle. That's the Twitter. Oh, okay. And if oh, you okay. Go, at Kentucky, Kentucky Crops. Crops. Okay. And if you want to go to the the website, it's at KY Grains, at, which KY stands for Kentucky. So it's at KYGrains.info. Um, okay. So uh, Dr. Chad Lee, thank you so much for your time today. And I hope to hear from you again on the Talking Biotech podcast. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, tell a friend about the, about the podcast. And be sure to share episodes like this one any place on social media where people have questions about their food and farming and want to hear from credible sources about uh, what the reality is. I think we're making tremendous gains in helping to educate the public on what this is and what this isn't. And uh, your participation and your sharing these resources has been a tremendous part of that. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech.com at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.